Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Russo-Japanese War Podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today, as always, is Nick. What's up, man? Fuck, we're finally done with the Navy. (laughs) So good. Uh, Yeah, and like I said last time, we kind of have to jump back in time again, um, because I'm a a hack and a bad at outlining podcasts, Uh, but there was no real good way to do this, like... It's like that one scene from the other guys where he's talking about, all right, for me to start this story, I got to start from the end, go to the beginning, and then briefly go back to the end, and then briefly talk about each character's background. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm the memento of podcasting people, um, mostly because I didn't want everybody to have to wait until part four to hear about the Battle of Tsushima, because that's what they came to the series for. I know what the people want. Uh, and like, um, you know, Tsushima. There's a, there's, you know, like that. Uh, we're covering part four now, which is mostly going to talk about the the end of ground of of ground fighting. Um, it, but uh, at the Battle of Sus- what are they fighting on? That's uh, the, the the ground, the earth. Oh, <laughs> you said this is the end of the ground fighting. I was well, like, the, huh? this ep- the, this episode will cover the end of the final ground battles oh, and stuff. Okay, um, I thought you said that this is the end of the ground fighting. I was like, are they fucking fighting in the air now? Space That's Force. Sweet. Um, like at the end of the last episode episode 3 at the Battle of Tsushima where the the Russian Navy got ethered into non-existence is pretty much the end of the war Um, But and we'll come back to that because we're going to talk about um, what exactly that led to we also need to find out where the fucking animals went (laughs) they actually uh, went back to Russia and played a pivotal part in the Russian Revolution (laughs) yeah they're actually decorated Vladimir Lenin was a crocodile (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nobody yeah. nobody talks about this is crocodile erasure uh, now when we left you last time the russian fleet or at least most of it was at the bottom of the pacific ocean and the japanese had all but won the war but in order to tell the story completely and you know round out this war nicely it, as all wars and clean and nice at the end and there's never any secondary or tertiary effects jag- jagged yeah. rounded uh we have we have to war. jump back in time again and rejoin the land war um now when we left that uh, when we left the land war the russians had finally been kicked out of port arthur because their commander finally realized that the czar was dumb and he was fucked uh that happened in january of 1905 uh, meaning manchuria was gripped by horrible horrible winters now i don't i don't imagine anybody has a map handy but if say you like you know, you, you open the, the metaphysical map in your head or perhaps Google on your phone or something. Manchuria is saddled right next to Siberia. So you can just imagine how terrible these winters are. Um, this meant the soldiers of the two empires were dealing with freezing winds in a temperature that would hover around, oh, about 22 degrees below zero on a good day. Yeah. What? Um, also, mm, that's not yeah, for me. It, that's going to be a hard no. Uh I'm a sun guy. I am now. I definitely like. There's no part of me that ever wants to move back to Michigan and be frozen for nine months out of the year. I mean, I've never met anybody from Michigan that says, "Oh, I can't wait to go back." <laughs> we're we're winter refugees. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, so that sounds really bad, and and it is. But like, most people think of Siberia as like this snowbound tundra, and parts of it are. But these winds that came down from Siberia into Manchuria were super, super dry. And, you know, for, for snow to form, needs, there needs to be moisture. Um, refer back to your you know, high school science class or whatever. But that meant uh, Manchuria was super dry and super cold and had wind that would just cut through anything. So it's, 
It's kind of like when you like get stationed in Texas, like when I was stationed at Hood, and, and I'm like, it's 125 degrees and I'm dying. And someone's like, well, it's a dry heat. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. Fuck it's yourself. A, it, yeah. Don't worry about Manchuria. It's a dry cold. Like, it's, it's not that bad. Uh, like, if you, you go into the saunas in, uh, I, every once in a while in Hood, I would. It'd be 100 outside. I'd go into the sauna and be like, there's no point. Why? Why? <laughs> I could. <laughs> I'll just go outside. I could just sit point. in my car. Yeah, there's no AC. I'll be fine. So while all this is going on, uh, the Russian forces were camped out in the city of Mukden, and they're digging in. F- while doing their best to dig in, like the ground was pretty much frozen, so they had to like blow up holes. Oh uh, yes. Um, and they were freezing their asses off as the Japanese arrayed themselves along a 160 kilometer front in front of them. Uh, this brought us to the Japanese commander, a guy named Oku Yasakuda. It was, and he was like not a dumb man. He'd been fighting wars since pretty much everybody he was fighting had been uh, before they were born. Yasukuda was born into a samurai family and first served in the military of the Chosu domain, fighting in the Boshin War on the side of the Meiji Restoration. After that, he fought in the Setsuma Rebellion, meaning in podcast lore, he was one of the people who shot Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I know that lore. Okay, I know where we're Which, at now. All right, you kind of lost me there for yes. a second. So oh. if you go back to our, our, our bonus in The Last Samurai, that was uh, a redoing of the Setsuma Rebellion, and Yasakuda had fought on the side of the government putting down that Samurai Rebellion, which was wow. not, in fact, entirely a Samurai Rebellion, but we'll talk about that probably. Did Tom Cruise train this guy? No, Tom Cruise would have fought him. Oh, you mean like before that? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So in podcast lore, mm. yeah, Tom Cruise is America in this situation. <laughs> he trained the Mujahideen and then they shot him. <laughs> yeah. The Samurai Mujahideen. Uh, these, this is all historical canon. I can't help it. Um, and yeah. I, what I mean by all of this is like Yasakuda knew what the fuck he was doing. Um, and, he, and like most uh, officers of the day, wars generally weren't fought in the winter uh, at that time in, in history. It's like winter sucks. We're just going to camp out until it's decent again. Um, I mean, can't no, blame and him. as someone who's forced to go to the field in winter constantly, like, yeah, Ugh. we should not. I mean, don't fight wars ever, but also don't fight wars in winter. <laughs> don't do anything in the winter. Let's just all have a, like, a quick standby. Yeah, just do what we did and just stay inside and get drunk all the time. Uh, it's like that <laughs> thing when everyone's like, how do people in Michigan survive the winter? Like, you don't go fucking outside. Like, it's, it's not that hard. You know, uh, us Californians uh, survive the winter. We don't have a winter. We live in California, so... Uh... That's pretty much it. <laughs> That'll do it. Pretty much good. Yeah. Just do what it's we do. the same do. thing we do in Hawaii. What's winter? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Disease okay. state. Uh, welcome to Infection Island. Uh, I'll be your host. <laughs> I feel so bad because that's such a... I wanted to go there so bad. So do a lot of people. <laughs> Until it's like, okay, uh, well, you come in, you land at uh, Honolulu Airport, and you just get issued COVID. And then they lay you. Yep. Actually, when I landed, those were uh, not happening because you can't touch one another. <laughs> oh, they couldn't like do the little ring toss? No, you couldn't like... ring toss each other's necks. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Yasa could have knew that like there wasn't going to be any fighting in winter. So he had his people dig in the best they could and then just like make winter quarters. Uh, and like for like the long haul, he wasn't digging trench lines, uh, though those did, those did exist. He's like, we're going to be here a couple months, right? He assumed the Russians felt the same way because this was conventional thinking at the time as you would just stare at one another across frozen hellscape like, I'll see you in spring, motherfucker. You just wait. When this shit thaws, I'm going to stab you. Now, he would turn out to be both right and wrong. Wrong in that the Russians were smart enough to not fight during the winter and right that he was a, it was a really dumb idea in order to do that. Facing him in Mukden was a Russian general and minister of war, a guy that we have... Not shit on enough, Alexei Kuropotkin. Kuropotkin had so far tripped over his dick and lost every single battle he had fought so far, even snatching the defeat from the jaws of victory at Laodong, uh, a small problem that would follow him all the way through World War I and the Russian Revolution. <laughs> Losing never cost this guy his job. <laughs> I mean, he has consistency, and I guess that's what they were looking yeah, for. Yeah, the, the, the czar is like, hmm, what we don't need now is, is a man with, with skills or competence we need consistency now Kuropotkin's never I won mean, a battle but like he's always there at them 
Exactly. So if the czar is probably like, hey, we really need to lose this battle for some fucking reason. Send in this guy. Look at his record. Look at his stats. I got his fucking playing card right That's here. That's like something interesting about like George Washington, for example. Like he never really won any battles, but he was really good at organization and like keeping a military together. Yeah, he was kind of well. He like he could. Uh, he knew when to like withdraw and keep his um, his his force together, which like and not get routed, not get like cut off, which is are very very good skills to have. Kuropatkin didn't have that either. Oh, like, yes. I remember every single retreat that he's had so far has been like a confused route where they leave like two thousand people behind. <laughs> <sighs> And Kuropatkin knew the Japanese raid against him were going to be reinforced very soon by Nogi Marisuki's third army, fresh off its victory at Port Arthur. Now, most Russians thought that the army that defeated them at Port Arthur, that being Marisuki's third, had to be the best in the Japanese army. Um, I guess there's nothing to really base it. Like, they're, they're battle-hardened veterans at this point, but so is every other force that, that Japan had deployed. And, and Marisuki right. had lost so many people during that battle that there's a good chance that not many people survived it from the start to the end that were still in the army. So, he, but but Kuropatkin was deathly afraid of this army reinforcing those positions, uh, and and knew that once they did, there's no way he'd be able to defeat them. Which, spoiler alert, he can't defeat them anyway. But because he's a fucking idiot. Uh, he was worried that if Yasukudo was reinforced, that those two uh, armies would then launch an attack against him at Mukden, despite the fact that they had made zero preparations in order to do so in the middle of winter, because why the fuck would they do that? Yeah, it's fucking cold. Furthermore, Kuropatkin was desperate for a real victory, because he hadn't had any of them yet. Uh, this is because after commanding the Russians to defeat at Yao Yang, he had simply wired the Tsar and told them that they had won. Do you think he uh, every once in a while just go to a random soldier and he's like, "All right, look, I need a real, I need a victory. Rock paper scissors, me, real Rochambeau quick. me for the but commander." He still fucking loses. It's it's like when um he's like fuck and he just walks away. It's like when the like the Roman emperor went to the Colosseum. He's like he cuts off the fucking uh, people's thumbs, like thumb wrestle me, like oh, god damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he still loses. Like fuck, what? Like in like when he lost at Liao Yang, which is a pretty pretty big loss, he just told the Tsar that he won. And like, what's amazing is like this is the 1900s, and like telegraphs are a thing. Someone could have very easily just been like, "Dear Tsar, we lost real real bad." Uh, Like he framed it as like we you know we did uh, we fought them and then like you know withdrew in order. And the Japanese were, were badly lashed during this battle, so they can't possibly continue their advance, which is, com- is completely untrue. Uh, it was a rout, and they got stomped, and the Japanese immediately a- assaulted them again. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, he, he also wasn't great at management or logistics or manpower management in any way. Like, he... Is he good at no, anything? he's really not, um, other than the fact that he's good at pa- palace oh. intrigue, which is why he kept his job. Um, oh, okay. it's like the czar's government is pretty much ran by backstabbing nobles, and he happens to be one of them. Um, like he got reinforcements after that uh, route at Liao Yang, and then immediately tossed them into battle at Saho in October of 1904. Um, and like it, it was really st- like th- this battle alone, outside of every other battle we've talked about so far, pretty much underlines how bad he is at commanding. And remember, while all this is happening, not only is he a general. He's the minister of war. So, like, for people who aren't sure what that means, he is the secretary of defense of the Russian Empire. He's in charge. In charge. Yeah, he's in charge of literally everything, and he sucks. Um, like, so at the Battle of Saho, he thought his officers under him were incredibly incompetent, which, I mean, to be fair, probably a little correct on that. But he was worried that they wouldn't simply be able to pass down orders, like, you know, through a chain of command, which he's on the top of. So... in Instead of doing that, he simply wrote uh, and, and issued written orders to everyone, every single officer in the battle. Um, and this is a battle of tens of thousands of people. So you can imagine how many thousands of officers that includes. Uh, so when the battle started and people began to die very quickly, because you've been listening to this series for almost four hours at this point, that happens a lot. Uh, it was only a matter of time before one of those written orders fell into the hands of the Japanese, uh, because they, they found right. the body of a dead Russian officer. 
that meant that they gave up all of Kuropotkin's plan. Uh, this led to uh, a route which caused 41,000 casualties and uh, oh, and retreating into the city of Mukden where he was currently sitting. So like that, that perfectly encapsulates how bad he is at his job. Now, he was... It's a lot of yeah, dudes. I mean, 41,000 people is kind of like a drop in the bucket in this war. And like... I, I, Sorry, I'm still seeing it from uh, my yeah, mind. Yeah, as someone who... Like, we were both people who definitely would have died on day one in this battle. Uh, or day, oh, day one absolutely. of this war. I would have died on yeah. deployment. <laughs> like, pre-deployment. I mean, statistically, we probably both would from, like, cholera or whatever. But, like... Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's incredible that, like, all this keeps happening... And nobody's like, like Kuropotkin's never replaced. Uh, he's just like, can, he, what he does is he never takes any accountability for anything. And he's kind of allowed to do that as Minister of War and leading the battles. He can just fire everyone he doesn't like because he's also like, he's not only the overall commander, he's also their boss. So, like, and he doesn't have one because the Tsar's a fucking idiot. He's a thousand miles away. Now, uh, the, 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 the Trans-Siberian Railroad had finally been finished, and Kuropotkin was due to get uh, reinforcements from it. Um, and, and so he wanted to attack Yasukuda, uh, the, the Japanese position, across the way um, before he was reinforced. Uh, the problem was with that is he thought more eyes on the situation and word would leak back to the Tsar about how badly he's managing everything. Like... The one thing Kuropotkin seemed to be good at is limiting the amount of shit-talking people were able to do behind his back. Like, yeah. every, most people were afraid of, like, telling the Tsar, like, holy shit, this guy is mismanaging the shit out of this war. Um, this guy is covering his bases. Yeah, he did everything but actually win. Like, he's like, oh, oh no, what if... I completely botched this, the, the progress of this entire war? <laughs> well, he... There's the map of the whole fucking like battlefield, and just over it is a map of all his people talking shit. And he's just like, "All right, if I cut this guy off here, I could." Yeah, he's just good at strategy for fucking not getting talked shit on. That's how you survive in the palace. Like that's what it seems like. Like the the cream is not rising to the top here. Just the the most backstabbing motherfucker rose to the top. Like it it wasn't his skill. The fucking battlefield map is the rug. (laughs) It's it's that scene from Always Sunny where he has the thread. Map, but it's it, it's just people <laughs> leaking shit to the czar. Yeah. So I cut this off here, but it came from an undisclosed location here. But and, like any good officer, he's able to pass accountability off to the blame should something fail. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what comes to this battle uh, that he launches against, or this raid he launches against Yasukuda. Because remember, I've said this a point a couple of times. He's the minister of war, and he knew he needed to launch this plan. Uh, before his reinforcements got there and before the Japanese reinforcements got there. Uh, so you would think as uh, you know, the commanding general and the minister of war, he would make that plan himself, right? He, I would, he I would did not. So. Uh, instead, he just kicked that can down the road to the most inexperienced member of his staff to do so, uh, General Oscar Grippenberg. Yeah, I thought it'd be like a grizzly bear or it's something. The, the, it's the it's a chameleon. It's like a Russian. It's bear. one of the chameleons that survived. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, one of the fucking chameleons. Now the, just licking the map. Oh, I never thought of that. Chameleons and like uh, his second command, his aide de camp is one of the snakes. Uh, but oh, could you imagine a chameleon in Russian uniform? How many awards that thing would have? That'd be adorable. That's a new podcast mascot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, Grippenberg had just arrived in the war zone just a few months ago, and he had never been a general before. Like, this is his first deployment as a general, as a commanding, as a general. Like, he he's not new to war. He had previously fought on various other smaller uh, levels and command at various other smaller levels, like in the Russo-Turkish War and the Crimean War. So, like, he's not new to war, but he's like, I shouldn't be making the overall plan for this uh, because he wasn't really entirely aware of the realities of the war quite yet. Uh, and he was working directly under the minister of war. So he assumed that like the minister of war would be doing his job. Oh yes. Uh, but I mean, even though he wasn't, this is, even though this is his first time being an overall commanding general, didn't mean he was a fucking idiot. Unlike, you know, Kurapotkin, he thought launching an offensive in the middle of winter, like Yasakuda, was very, very stupid, and he shouldn't do it. Uh, furthermore, the Russian soldiers that he like reviewed 
were not in great shape. They'd been beaten multiple times, and they had virtually no morale left to lose. Um, but also their supply situation was awful. There was not enough... This is a trend with the Russians that whenever we talk yeah, about like them, the, everything I say about morale and supply could be copy and pasted into our Soviet Afghan war. Hundred um, percent. It's it's a, it's a like, tradition. It almost seems like you're trying to take a break on the script. Like, oh, let me go back to the other uh, fucking podcast we just had. I got to copy and paste. I, it's actually just called Russian history, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, like there wasn't enough ammo. Uh, uh, there wasn't enough food, there wasn't enough water, and there wasn't enough medical supplies. Uh, though I guess medical science at the time was mostly trying to do an exorcism to get the ghosts out of your blood. So, like, I guess that's the least serious of everything I just named. <laughs> you have too much blood in your body. We got to cut your leg off. <laughs> you got your humors are all disjointed. <laughs> yeah. You got the flu. We gotta. We gotta open up the. You you you, you see, yeah. we gotta pull off your toenails because you got the the sugars. Uh, now, uh, Grippenberg knew that there was no way he was going to get out of this bad job. Like he knew that he's like, God damn it. No matter what I do, he's going to make me make this plan. This fucking sucks. So he agreed, uh, to make this operation as long as all three Russian armies that were encamped in Mukden would take part and help coordinate. They said they would. And it was, you have to ask also like exactly right and he's making this plan directly for the guy who's supposed to be their boss so it's like just tell him to fucking do it you're literally the minister that makes of no war. sense <laughs> hold on let me make sure they're good let me go over right. to this army can be like yeah what's in it for me like, i don't know the fucking war maybe uh <laughs> your yeah. life i don't really know either way you're gonna die like i don't know you could either refuse. And it was decided that these elements would work together and launch their attack against the Japanese left flank. Uh, now, one of the keys to this battle was surprise. Uh, he knew that the Japanese wouldn't see an attack coming uh, because only a total idiot attacks someone during the dead of a Siberian winter, right? And to be yeah. fair, he was mostly right. Um that was the, until he uh, forwarded the plans to St. Petersburg for approval from the Tsar, which uh, immediately, because like, there's no secrets within the Tsar's inner circle. Everything immediately bleeds out to other people. This ended up with a loudmouth within the Tsar's court openly talking about the planned attack to a reporter from a French newspaper. That reporter did what reporters what? do and published it, leading to the Japanese to find out about the attack before it happened. <laughs> Uh, we're still, the Russian commanders in Mukden had no idea about their plans had been, uh, having been leaked to the press because they did not receive any French newspapers to the front and their intelligence agency was completely stupid. So they just went ahead with their original plan. Don't worry, we got them by the balls. Now, they, the, the Russians were so bad, at that, that, so bad at this that their incompetence actually helped them a little bit. The Japanese really didn't prepare. Because they thought that the leak was so dumb it had to be part of a, of a plan to lure them out of position. Because who is dumb enough to leak their entire battle plan to the fucking media weeks before it happens? <laughs> and then it pans over to the Russian side. Us! It's us! We did that! The Japanese knew the Russians might just be that dumb uh, when they saw Grippenberg openly redeploy a large amount of troops over to the left flank. So like at that point, Yasukura's like, oh, Oh, they're that stupid. Okay, we're still doing this. Yeah, these fuckers are dumb. <laughs> the first move, what would become the Battle of Sandapu, would uh, be a cavalry raid led by Russian General pa- Pavlov. Sorry, Pavel Mishachenko. I'm bad at names. You're not, you're, everybody listening already knows I'm bad at names. But it's P- Pavel Masachenko. Misachenko? Uh, he's Ukrainian. Uh, Mr. Chenko. Mr. Janko. The jeans from the 90s. Mm, yes. Just, I heard he got in a fight with the Fubu, Fubu guys. Uh, it's just a like a Russian general in the in the early 1900s wearing billowing, a billowing pair of Jenko jeans. Did you own uh, a pair? No, I couldn't afford them. They're really expensive. Oh yes. <laughs> Thankfully, my bad fashion choices were limited because of how poor I was. Uh, for some reason, I feel like you would own a pair. If I, I could afford one, probably. I don't know. I I was a dumbass possible just get some now oh, they're probably a thing aren't they someone they somewhere be. trying to bring them back i'll put money on that without even googling it so 
the Safe raid uh, included 6,000 cavalry troopers and a few dozen cannons. Uh, now, his target was a rail station that was thought to be used as a food and supply depot for the Japanese army. Now, um, there's, a, there's a two-fold reason for this plan. Like, obviously, they wanted to cut the Japanese off from their supplies, but also they wanted to steal them because, remember, they have none. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have We're supplies. We're going to call this a cavalry raid, but we're, it's actually a military-grade mugging. <laughs> uh, now this ad- has everybody got their ski mask <laughs> this, this advance was slowed pretty much immediately because remember they're in the middle of winter a very cold and windy winter in Manchuria so uh, he was immediately greeted by a windstorm that kicked up dirt <laughs> and dust fucking immediately uh, hmm, who could have seen that coming except everybody <laughs> Uh, it, it was so thick that by the time that they had gotten to the rail station, the Japanese had seen them coming as they've been getting lost in the storm the whole time and had been prepared for that. <laughs> this gave... They've just been riding around in circles. Pretty much. Like, they got lost and, like, uh, at one point probed the wrong part of the Japanese line. And they're like, oh, that's at the supply depot and immediately pulled back. And, like, the Japanese were very confused as to what, that is as to, like, what the fuck was going on. Like, did you guys see those horses? I saw horses. <laughs> I was just going to dip the old pinky toe into the water. By the time uh, Mischenko got his uh, his cavalry raid on target, he ach- he unlocked the wonderful achievement of being one of the first modern military commanders to lead his cavalry directly into the barrels of a Maxim machine gun. Oh. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to lead into Combo anything breaker. in 1904. <laughs> yeah. But Mischenko had explicit orders to not stop attacking without... Uh, more orders from Grippenberg or the or Korpotkin himself. So, or maybe from the newspapers. Or maybe from a French newspaper, yeah. So after three different attempts over several days, Mischenko finally gave up oh, and retreated God. back to the Russian lines, <laughs> leaving thousands of dead and wounded behind him, uh, including himself. He was shot in the leg and couldn't fight in the rest of the war. Um, also, they didn't like they did some damage to the uh, the supply depot, but it was repaired in literally like an hour by the Japanese. They, <laughs> they did nothing. They accomplished absolutely nothing. Like if piece of two by four fell from the seat, don't worry, we got it. Like it's a no straight big deal. bullet just like hits a light bulb or something. Like, oh, we got to change up the light. Somebody <laughs> yeah. get a potato. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, unless the, the 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 part of his plan was to well, they have more machine gun bullets than us. So if we just charge their machine gun. I'll have to use them. Yeah. They'll run out eventually. <laughs> it's the Zap Brannigan of military of military you know, history. I, I say that I say that in video games, whenever a dude's holding a position for really long, I'm like, look, he's gotta run out of ammo at some time. He's gotta reload reload soon. Congratulations on your commission into the staff officer corps of the Imperial Russian Army, Nick. <laughs> yeah. So the next day on nineteenth of January, Grippenberg launched his assault against the Japanese left flank. But before he could do that, you remember how he was supposed to like get all three armies to coordinate and help? Yeah, he was supposed yeah, to ask. So right before that happened, Kuropatkin probably got an idea that this attack wouldn't work, but didn't call off the attack. He just restricted the troops under Grippenberg's command to just three divisions. Ah. Uh, despite the fact that he had made the plan and Kuropatkin and the Tsar had approved the plan, requiring the entire second Manchurian army to take part. Grippenberg sighed, realized that he didn't have any choice, and continued his attack anyway, directly into the same kind of weather that had fucked over Mischinka. <laughs> now, you think they actually have a weather report guy that's just kind of ass at it? And he's just like, you know, uh, yeah, it's going to be clear today. Your guys are good. Clear chance, you know, chance of brain. I don't know. Uh, sir, it is negative 22 degrees outside. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you the weather guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh... I'm wearing shorts. They I'm had fine. Done no previous reconnaissance of anything, um, because remember, this is supposed to be like a surprise. Like he didn't want to ruin the surprise by setting scouts up, which is also kind of stupid. Um, and also, they had no maps of the area, uh, so it was kind of just like uh, the left flanks that way. Uh, but none of that really mattered because they got caught in the middle of a fucking snowstorm, like a blinding blizzard. And everybody got lost. Um, every division got lost uh, and confused and simply launched attacks at random wherever they happened to come across a group of Japanese soldiers. Uh, 
Maybe Russian. Uh, that also happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they definitely really? sh- they shot oh. at each other like a lot. <laughs> Actually, it's not surprising. Just launching a bayonet charge back at like the headquarters or something. <laughs> well, we did something really stupid, but somebody stabbed Kuropotkin to death, so this could only get better. Um, I imagine while they were charging, like they took our fucking uniforms, they took our fucking rifles. These bastards, wily motherfuckers. Uh, so, like at one point, uh, some division did actually find the village they were supposed to attack and attacked it, and that's the village of Sandipu. Uh, oh yes, uh, but everybody else is all spread out now. So it, instead of like several divisions um, attacking this position, there's one. Um, it, it's all you and they did manage one of the Russian divisions that were lost managed to take the wrong village. Which then led to them being immediately cut off by the entire Japanese Fifth Army. Uh, <laughs> oh fuck! Uh, surrounded and under attack, they begged Grippenberg for relief, but instead of relieving them, Grippenberg simply ordered his soldiers to rest. <gasps> fuck! Uh, well, they're goners. <laughs> he then sent word to Kuropotkin that he had taken Sandipu, and what has to be the first time ever I've seen a general officer give a fuck it, like 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 he you know like we joke like the give a fuck broke. Like, this is the first time I've ever seen a general officer's, like, give a fuck break in the middle of a battle. <laughs> and, like, while this is happening, his one division cut off. One division not have taken the city or the village that he said that they had taken. Like, they're on the outskirts. And then one division just went back to the Russian line. They got they just tired? just said, fuck it. I don't know. Like, like yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> this war stuff sucks. Yeah. By the next day, the blizzard had cleared, and it became obvious to everyone that the Russians did not control the village that they said they controlled. In fact, they controlled a completely different one, which was then surrounded by the Japanese. <laughs> Fuck, that sucks. And then the Japanese forces within Sandipu, which outnumbered the Russians, had begun shelling them uh, and shelling the Russian line. So it was pretty obvious to everyone that, like, Grippenberg had lied, or he's incompetent and didn't know what village he had taken. I think it's both. I don't know. Uh, now, at this point, Grippenberg realized what was going on and wanted to continue the offensive, despite not actually knowing where all of his soldiers were and the fact that he had lost an entire division to spontaneous retreating back to the main line. Now, at this point, even Kuropotkin knew that this was fucking stupid, and they began to argue over the details via runner, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, they, were, they were sending... I feel so bad for that runner. <laughs> like a runner would send orders back and forth, and like Kuropotkin would give like like scream at him to write them all down, then take the letter back, leading to uh, uh, like Grippenberg to do the same thing. And then the runner's like, "Come on, man! I've ran two marathons today." <laughs> um, got it. And the running's for the devil. Yeah, yeah. like I mean, just anybody who enjoys running, I'll just trust reading you. The accounts of people who were runners, like back in war, makes my knees hurt. Um, and while they were arguing over the details, a general named Georgi Stackelberg said, fuck it, and just launched his own assault on Sandipu with only the forces around what? him. They're like, fuck it, you guys come with me. <laughs> There's only five of us. <laughs> it worked. As dumb as this whole thing sounds, it was the most <laughs> effective attack that the Russian military make against the village. And it could be argued the most effective attack the Russian military made against the Japanese during the entire portion of this war. <laughs> Yeah, nailed it. First try. forces managed to get a foothold in the village and began to reinforce it by other Russian units, totally independent of Grippenberg's or anybody else's command. They're just like, hey, look, an attack, and, like, joined in. They're like, oh, look. Hey, look, that one actually looks yeah. promising. Like, they, 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 it worked. Um, and then as this was happening, and the, the Japanese are peeling off from Sandipu, realizing, like, eh, maybe this village isn't really worth defending. Um, because the Russians seem to have gotten their shit together, Kuropotkin snatched defeat from the jaws of victory again, sending orders that immediately relieved Steckelberg of command for insubordination and ordered Grippenberg to withdraw. The soldiers, only probably a few minutes away from taking the village, were thrown into confusion by these orders um, and had no idea what to do because now suddenly, like, well, Steckelberg's like, sorry guys, I guess I'm not a general anymore. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm out. In, in this confusion of not sure whether to retreat or push the attack, the Japanese launched a counterattack, crushing everyone that was around it still trying to put up a fight. I feel bad for the soldiers because just looking at the general, he's trying to out-process it in the village. Where's S1? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get my leave approved. 
Yeah, and they're just being <laughs> fucked. After the battle, Grippenberg immediately resigned his commission and left the war zone. His first and only battle as a general. Huh. Uh, Steckel- Steckelberg I mean... had his career completely ruined and his reputation tarnished and went home. But it seems that the Tsar didn't even agree with his own minister of war uh, because Steckelberg, was, when he got home, was immediately awarded the, the Order of St. George 4th Class, which is a very, very high-ranking medal in the Russian Imperial military, um, for bravery, for the same battle he was fired for. Oh. So, yeah, like, I guess that's a fearic victory in his part. I don't know. Um, now, after this fail- failure, nothing stopped General Marasuki from reinforcing the Japanese uh, forces lined up against Mukden. While the Japanese had been marching, pretty much unfailing since the beginning of the war and never losing a battle, they were at their end. Uh, now, we talked... Can I, just, can I say that Mukden just sounds fucking like it smells like shit? I mean, it's full of hundreds of thousands of uh, Russian soldiers like living in trenches, so yeah, I'm going to say you're probably correct. I'd fucking do it. <laughs> um, well, we, remember when we talked about the Siege of Port Arthur, their battle tactics... The Japanese battle tactics combined with the modern murder machines of like mass artillery and machine guns meant high casualties were just part of the plan. That meant after all of that, their combined strength was now outside of Mukden, like the Russians within. Meaning like the entire the entirety of both sides' commitment to the war was now lined up against one another for one like giant battle like a shitty JRPG. <laughs> the, the result would be uh, a land uh, the the result being that the entire land war would depend on the outcome of the single battle because whoever lost their back would be broken their army wouldn't be able to fight anymore everybody was at their end at this point uh. and this isn't an easy place to be reinforced by either side uh, so uh, and you know largely like the city of Mukden largely tactically unimportant they're simply fighting over it because the other people happen to be there. Um, it's that it's that red versus blue skit that we only have a base in this valley because they have a base in this valley. <laughs> uh, after Kuropotkin had every single offensive blow up in his face, he knew that he had to prepare for a purely defensive action, and that's how he uh, ordered his forces to array themselves. The Japanese saw this, and their plan was not to throw themselves directly at the at the enemy to try to overrun them like they had been doing, but. To encircle the city, with their overall commander, Field Marshal Oyama, ordering that any fighting within the city was to be avoided at all costs, mostly because he knew it would turn to a horrible meat grinder that urban warfare is generally known for. But mostly, and probably more surprisingly, is Oyama was worried about civilian casualties of the Chinese civilians of the area. Really? Uh, that had, I mean, they had largely taken the side of the Japanese during the war because of how awful the Russians had been, and he didn't want to alienate them. Meaning that, much wow. like the Koreans, that this is the first and only time in Sino-Japanese history that, the ja- that any Japanese leader gave a fuck about the lives of Chinese people. <laughs> or fucking anybody. Like, in literally th- fucking 30 years, so much would change. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> the battle began uh, on 20 February, 1905. And uh, the battle unleashed not only the largest battle of the war, but quite possibly the largest in history until the beginning of World War One. And like the and by I mean I mean like modern history, there's a lot of um, Chinese battles from like the uh, like the Romance of Three Kingdoms area era and things after that, where like Chinese armies were just like comically massive and caused like millions of casualties. Um, but the, like in modern history, this was one of the largest all the way up until. Uh, probably the Battle of Frontiers or other battles of World War I. Uh, like, tens of millions of rounds would be fired. Hundreds of thousands of artillery shells would be fired over the next 10 days. And almost 1 million men attempted to kill one another over a country that was neither of theirs. Huh. Now, what, what the, the Japanese were really attempting to do if, to get, like, you know, tactics nerdy was like a hammer and anvil type approach where they would try to get the, uh, the, the Russians to commit fully to battle by attacking along like the front while trying to move along behind them and flank them and break their flank. Um, and, and, they, and the anvil being their front line being pinned down by the Japanese attack, but also because, you know, they only prepared to, att- to defend from these lines. Uh, the, the, this right. is not a, a modular design by any means. Um, 
And it was kind of working. Um, as the Japanese soldiers moved around to complete their encirclement, the Russian soldiers, like during the Siege of Port Arthur, actually fought pretty well as long as they were on the defensive. And this actually tracks mostly well through World War One, for the most part. That um, And even uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia, that as long as the Russians weren't forced to maneuver, they did fine. Like right. Because their officers were so bad, they, ha- they couldn't command them on the move. <laughs> the Japanese are mowed down by machine gun and rifle fire, uh, though the Russian artillery largely failed completely. Um, the reason for this was that the Russians rushed out a new kind of artillery uh, for this battle, and like it was put in Mukden, uh, uh, and it came in with some new reinforcements. The problem was is that nobody had trained anybody on the use of these guns and their new sighting. So, like, nobody could fire them accurately. Uh, there was, their artillery oh, wow. support was technically there, but it was wildly inaccurate and off-target, while the Japanese artillery clearly outdueled them and just devastated them almost entirely. Fuck. As the Russians held, Kuropatkin received word that the Japanese Third Army under our boy Marisuki, was moving west around the city. Now, if you remember from the last battle, uh, Kuropatkin kind of thought as uh, Marisuki and his third army is like the boogeyman of the Japanese army, and they like were to be feared um, for reasons I still don't completely understand, other than the fact he just keeps losing to them. So, like, if I keep losing to them, that must mean that they're, they're, they're the elite of the Japanese army. Yeah. It can't possibly be because I suck. Definitely. That. Also, he's lost to other armies. I can as see well. that. So, like, you know, he just he just lost to Yasakuda, but he didn't internalize that one as deeply. Um, yeah, maybe there's something to this yeah, guy. I'm starting to think Kuropatkin not great at his job, Nick. I don't think he's that great. Yeah. At it. That that's what I've been thinking throughout this whole series. I think series. it's instead of developing like a healthy respect for an enemy commander that you know took Port Arthur, like it developed into a fear. Um, because when he heard that the third army was maneuvering uh, around him, he decided that nobody could counter this threat except him. Despite the fact that his troops were it's like a bad movie, yeah, like <laughs> he's I mine, right where I want him. Despite the fact that his troops were already committed to battle somewhere else, and there was already troops stationed on the west side to meet him. So when Korpotkin gave his orders for the third Manchurian army under his direct command to shift west, the order was lost in the, in the chaos of battle. Because remember, they're still fighting. Some yeah. units moved while others didn't. Still others heard that they should pull back into the city and prepare to defend in depth. And like nobody had any, because like, remember, there's no chain of command here. Um, he, which goes back to the Osaho, where like, he had to write everything out on paper, which still didn't work. He still lost. Um, so immediate chaos, uh, in the end, attempting to shift his armies over to the West ever so slightly caused him to fall, like caused his army to fall apart completely. Now, Oyama saw this and ordered his soldiers to exploit that gap in the line that, that Kuropatkin himself had created and gave a explicit order to quote, pursue and destroy the breaking Russian soldiers. Um, also the Russians, um, Built their uh, one of their uh, side flank, like one of their flanking positions, overlooking a river uh, on the Russian left flank. Um, the idea being like, well, you can't cross a river. The river had frozen solid because it's winter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like, it, they just crossed it. Like it's that simple. <laughs> no need to swim. I'll just walk. Yeah, like I can just. Uh, at that point, it had been frozen so solid, and might as well have been dirt. Uh, but the left flank collapsed completely, pretty pretty quickly after that. Um, and when the Russians broke, they caused the entire Russian defense around the river bank, a bank to collapse and be cut off from the rest of the Russian forces. As a result, the left flank collapsed, became encircled, as did the right, causing Korpotkin to order a retreat further north into the city. I always say whenever we talk about the Russians, it's at any point in time, whether defeat or victory, it's never good to be in the no, Russian army. No, it's not. Uh, anyway, tune in next time to our series of the any one of the Chechen wars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but the problem was is that left flank that had collapsed and been encircled and was buoyed by the frozen river was now behind Kuropatkin. 
So as they retreated into that, they ran into the Japanese, which meant that the Japanese had them all but surrounded. Uh. Um, the, the Russian soldiers panicked, and all hopes of an organized withdrawal were gone. Soldiers dropped their weapons, left their wounded behind, and ran for their lives into the wilderness. <laughs> Every man for himself? A few Russian forces that managed to stay together, uh, kind of like you know we said um, during our, uh, our Napoleon invasion of Russia series, like they rallied around the flag or whatever. By that I meant like they kept unit integrity. They just panicked and ran back yeah. towards the Russian border for safety. Uh, absolutely no attempt or rear guard was made to defend themselves as they retreated, as well as there's probably no organizational ability left within the command to do so, because Kuropotkin was running away as fast as he could too. (laughs) The only thing that saved Kuropotkin from a total and embarrassing destruction, or even possibly a Japanese counterattack into Russia, uh, which is like a rare possible historical note here, is that Field Marshal Oyama had overextended his own supply lines during the attack and assumed, incorrectly, that the Russians couldn't possibly be this bad and there must be something waiting for him as he got closer to Russia. (laughs) I mean, something will stop us. (laughs) Once again, the Japanese gave the Russians too much credit as the nearest Russian force that was in any position to resist any kind of Japanese force was 10 full days of marching away. Fuck. This meant that, like, Kuropotkin... And what remained of his army only survived because the Japanese thought they were more competent than they actually were again. Now, the Japanese moved into the city of Mukden and captured the railroad. With that, the land war was all but over, as both armies had smashed themselves into pieces, causing some of the worst casualties in the shortest amount of time the world had yet seen, but would unfortunately surpass not that far from now. (laughs) In just two weeks, the Russians lost 90,000 men, while the Japanese lost 75,000. Fuck, it's a lot still. In case the subordinate commanders of this battle on the Russian side, Alexander Samsonov and Paul von Rickenkampf, did not, had, had not done enough battle, uh, battle damage to the prestige of the czarist militaries, they wouldn't lose their job. In fact, they would both go on to command the disaster at Tannenberg in World War I. <laughs> oh fuck! So like Samsonov and uh, von Rankenkampf uh, could probably get like a like a, a bit of a high five from people who really support the Russian Revolution because without their incompetence, maybe it doesn't happen quite that way. <laughs> uh, like you get, I mean, I guess a way to look. You, you can <laughs> accidental assist. Good job, guys. Um, now, <laughs> yeah. after this battle on March 10th uh, ended. It was only about a month away from May 28th, which was the destruction of the Russian 2nd Pacific Fleet at Tsushima. After that, it was all but certain that the war was over. And not in in the way Russia or any European power ever thought was possible. Not only was Russia several times the size of the very new Japanese empire, but they thought of themselves racially superior. The idea that a traditional European power could lose a war to any Asian army was thought to be incredibly ridiculous until everybody watched it happen. And you're probably thinking, why didn't Russia just pour countless troops into the region to fight with their much, much superior numbers? And it's true. Like, Russia did not use the vast majority of their military in this war. There's a very good reason for that. Maybe they could have, if it wasn't for the incredibly uh, incredible unpopularity of the Tsar himself. We talked about how important the Japanese population thought the war was. Like, remember, protesting in favor of war, protesting in favor of overseas empire. The exact opposite could be said for Russia. And, like, it's weird. Like, one thing that uh, someone brought up, and there is some historical evidence to back that up, as much as there's historical evidence to back up any dumbass thing that Tsar Nicholas did, is that this was a war to try to uh, shore up support for his government. And that's possible. Um, wars totally happen for that reason. There's a very good argument that can be made that that's why Margaret Thatcher committed to the Falklands War, um, is to shore up support for a very, very unpopular government. Um, but in Russia, nobody could give a shit less. Like, nobody cared about the war at all outside of the, the, the inner circle of, like, the Russian nobility and the czarist court, while it was the peasantry that was being conscripted and sent to die in huge numbers. 
And like th- that oh, attitude yeah. that we talked about in uh, like Napoleon's invasion of France, uh, where like people would like it when you got conscripted into the military, like, oh, like, oh, you're dead now. Like that was still, that was still a thing. So like, but like conscription numbers would go up or go down depending on how many people they needed for war. So like the idea that like, okay, so now they're really like being sent to die for something that like does not matter. Uh, It's weird how that can upset some societies and others are totally fine with it, America. Um, (laughs) Though like that, that might have not pissed. That was a good one. (laughs) That that was a good one. (laughs) Everybody gets one. Now, uh, that, that yeah. might have, maybe it would have not been so unpopular if that, like, the, the, the czarist government was attempting to stymie the news of constant Russian failures, but he it was not doing a good job. It was embarrassing. And, you know, when you're an autocrat or, you know, a king or whatever you want to fucking call yourself, an authoritarian, and, like... An autocrat? If, if, you, if you're one of those people and, like, you're supposed to be a strong man, right? You're supposed to, like, you rule by being the strongest... Um, person you can be, and that's why all these people array themselves with military medals, despite never, you know, serving in the military like Czar Nicholas has, or they uh, surround themselves with the military to make themselves look good. But, and this is something that people have right. pointed out, like after the the, the Soviet Afghan war, is like the invincibility of the Red Army was destroyed because it was embarrassed, and that was the one thing that like tied everything together. And that was like the the Czarist army looked awful, so people are like, well. If he doesn't have that, and they're that bad, what does he have? And, and like, if you combine that with all of the other problems that were still in Russia before the war started, like the imperial government being horribly corrupt, uh, the the economy in freefall, like they were pretty much completely uh, supported by like German debt, uh, not to mention violent oppression, which is the only way that the czar kept people in line. Um, all this combined together into violent insurrections in the revolution of 1905 that began in January and only got worse at the defeats of Tsushima, Mukden, and others. So the idea of like, after the defeat at Mukden, like, okay, now I need to like turn the tat, like I need to open the faucet all the way up for the Imperial Army. Uh, well, but oh shit, now we have all these revolutions at home. I need the army at home. Yeah. Um, so obviously sending more troops away to war was a no-go as he, had sh- he needed to shore up his defenses at home to stop him and his family from getting shot in a bay and ended to death in the back room by revolutionaries that would happen in a few years anyway. Um, uh, the Tsar knew he had to end the war and bring soldiers home uh, because the only thing that ever does that is you know, civil disobedience and insurrection. Weird. Uh, Japan had clearly won the war. And they really were all about this new empire. Uh, but the problem was the stress of fighting their first true peer-on-peer war had severely strained their economy. And they became over-reliant on foreign debt from the U.S. and the U.K. Furthermore, their supply lines had all been pretty much tapped out. Like, fighting a war overseas is really fucking hard. All and remember, time. like, all the rapid revolution that, Jap- that Japan went through militarily in order to get to this point. Like, this is all only a couple yeah. of decades removed from one another. Um, they'd won, but they also need to end the war and get their shit together. Both sides accepted President Teddy Roosevelt's offer to mediate the negotiations in New Hampshire and Maine, of all places. <laughs> weird. Like, there's, I don't know why I find that part weird, but it's like, yes, come hang out and fucking, I don't know. I can't even think of a town in New Hampshire. But, like, let's hang out in Cincinnati, Ohio. Like what? So, so that so that Why? way everybody can come together and have skyline chili or something. No, I think that's. I don't think that's. Insane. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Japan had leaned on the U.S. as a pro-Japanese voice throughout most of the war, and it's true the U.S. was, and they used them as a pipeline to get messages to the Tsar to sue for peace or ceasefires, something they had done on several occasions. But the Tsar had ignored them every single time because he was sure that he could win the war. Until he watched his entire navy get ethered uh, and lose every single land land battle. Though the Tsar knew he needed peace, he refused to agree with giving up any territory, paying any reparations, or any kind of limitation to deploy the Russian military into the Far East. So he just wanted people to stop beating him. He didn't actually want to admit defeat. That's what that is. Like there's there's absolutely oh, okay. zero concessions in any of the any of the things that he wanted. Like this is how the war started. Remember, like. 
Japan's like, hey, can we do this? And like, you know, maybe you give us this slice of Korea. And they're like, no. Okay, well, can we do this? And maybe you give us this slice of Korea? No. Okay, I guess I have to shoot you now. <laughs> like, and, and after <laughs> yeah. hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and he's lost his Navy and there's a revolution at home, he's still doing the same thing. I'm starting to think Zar Nicholas is a fucking idiot. He has to be. Like, Japan's pointing out all this shit like, hey, remember when we stomped you right here? I, I don't remember such things. I have telegraphs proving that our Japanese empire, the, the Japanese emperor is just like pointing to his like, scoreboard, scoreboard. <laughs> and then this guy with his shitty telegraphs like, no, look, look, victory. Ah, uh, yes, but you see, we're white. You can't help with that. Fuck. Yeah. You can't military defeat racism, unfortunately. You can try, and you should, but you can't. Uh, but Somehow it always comes after up. After 12 separate meetings, the Russians finally agreed to accept the Japanese control of Korea and pull their forces out of Manchuria. After a few more meetings, the Japanese pressed the issue on reparations, blaming the, Russia for the war, which I'm not going to take sides on that one because they're both fighting a war over a country that is not their own. They're both bad people here. Right? Fuck them both. Uh, but... They, uh, they, they finally dropped the idea of reparations, but instead settled for control of a few small islands. They finally agreed, and the Treaty of Portsmouth was signed on September 5th, 1905. And the treaty all but ended any Russian expansion into the Far East and gave Japan the title of Imperial Power of the East. In all but name, because nobody was going to recognize their power because of racism. But the problem was is everybody had to recognize them as the Eastern threat. Like, now that's the main reason why, like, the U.S. was not pro-Japan. They were anti-Russia. So, like, supporting Japan to own Russia to get them out of the East because the U.S. saw Russia as a competing imperial power, which they did not see Japan as. And you could argue they didn't even after they won. Um, yeah. Really? Um, but the people of Japan... Uh, is a group of people that I did not think would be unhappy about winning this war, but they were. This led to uh, the, this Treaty of Portsmouth led to huge amounts of riots um, because the Japanese thought that they didn't get enough. Which I mean, you could argue that they didn't. Uh, normally, when you absolutely destroy an imperial power like that, you take some good things. They didn't really get a whole lot, um, but the Japanese people rioted, leading to the deaths of seventeen people and the collapse of the government. Like, the, the prime minister really? had to resign. Holy this shit. also is considered what is known as, in Japan as the era of popular violence. Uh, because because <laughs> Japan is really good at naming stuff. Um, <laughs> it's a time when Japan was routinely rocked by violent riots over things like inflation, labor disputes, and the cost of rice. Like, it was like, well, we have a problem with the government. Time to burn shit down. <laughs> Thankfully, that never happened again, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, though this treaty would eventually lead to several things. Japan was now a world power. That much could not be argued, though the West would argue that. And when Japan threw their lot in with the Allies during World War I, they would once again be fucked over when it all came down because of racism. But more importantly, their expansionist ideas would not slow down. Why would they? They had nothing standing in their way in the East now. Russia isn't a threat anymore. We already destroyed them. And then they got wrecked by revolution. So, like, now they're even less of a threat. The treaty led directly to the annexation of Korea in 1910 and the various terrible crimes that would occur there, And while the international community did nothing. Indirectly, their victory in this war would lead, to their, would lead their expansionism into direct conflict with the same country that helped them negotiate peace, the U.S., Without Russian competition in the region, the Japanese could expand their grasp over China and Southeast Asia, eventually leading to the Second Sino-Japanese War and World War II. Ex this expansionism would eventually end in nuclear hellfire in 1945. Oh. There's a direct line from Japan winning this war to us nuking Japan. It sounds yeah. like it. <laughs> it sounds like these puzzles are falling together. And pieces what it together. pretty much comes down to is like if if they had lost, they would have to reevaluate their expansionism policy. Not to mention, like in the game of imperialism, whoever's winning and like whoever's the, the biggest kid on your block gets to dominate the others. 
I, I don't think Russia was ever going to win this war, and winning the war would certainly wouldn't have stopped the Rus- Russian Revolution from happening. But hypothetically, when the Soviet Union took over, they would have still been the big kid on the block in the East, and it would have checked to Japan. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it would have significantly altered Japan's history. Right. I wonder how that would have turned out. I, th- I think I, I don't like to play what ifs with history, but like I, I think. Japan still fights in World War One on our side, and I think without Japan coming, because the main reason Japan came in direct con- uh, conflict with the United States was over the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, because we were actually upset with what they were doing in China and threatened to stop giving them oil. Japan has no oil of their own. Their entire war effort was based on imports from the United States for the most part. Um, so that right. eventually led to, fuck you, Pearl Harbor. To, to, to yada, yada, yada my way through all sorts of horrible history. Um, but it's hard to see how Japan attempts to dominate China if they get checked by Russia because there's a good chance after that Russia dominates China. And Chinese history right. looks much different as well. So who, who knows? I, I think world, I mean, all these world wars still would have happened. It would just been interesting where Japan ended up in all of them. Maybe, maybe Japan right. would have been an ally. Because without the conflict over China, there would be no reason for them to fight the United States. Fuck. Yeah, you're right. Also, small side note here, and one I have to do a a, a shout out to our producer, Nate, for bringing this to my attention. The war didn't didn't lead to all imperialism and nuclear-based war crimes. Instead, it kind of led to manga and anime, and explicit anime porn, uh, which I sent to Nick. You're welcome. There's um, there was uh, so during the during the war, newspaper artists in Japan did engravings to de- depict battles for news or more likely propaganda. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was normal for Japanese artists of the day to make normal Korean or Chinese enemies look like incredibly racist caricatures of uh, in these same pieces. They made Japanese soldiers look slightly more European or white because internalized. They, the, Japan was attempting to make themselves look like the people they wanted to become and wanted to be seen equal as, which as the imperial powers of Europe. Um, it, it, nobody ever in, uh, accused of racist imperialism of being smart, okay? Uh, but during the war, they were fighting white Europeans, so they couldn't make the Russians look like the shitty racist uncle's sketch of a Chinese person. So they drew the Russians as white, but hyper uh, Europeanized their own features to be as Japanese soldiers making like cartoonish exaggeration of eyes that are like, they're almost akin to like Kabuki actors rather than normal, like rather than normal looking people. And there's like wild political cartoons of ship, like like dudes, like giant people with like ships for heads getting in fist fights, um, which I'm going to call the first ever mech battle. So you have the Russo-Japanese war to thank for Gundam and Evangelion. So like, and and like the the weird point. Why didn't you send me any of that? You You send me some crazy shit. And the reason why, there's a reason why um, I sent that to our producer as well. And he could not stop laughing. Um, And it was probably not late at night for you, but it was definitely late at night for me. See, things are different. Uh, And there's a lot. uh, And it's weird. Um, I've seen a lot of war propaganda and war art while in, in the, in, the act of doing this podcast over the almost three years now. Um, but like, this is really interesting in that it's war propaganda that is pro Japanese that simply depicts graphically a Japanese and a Russian soldier vigor- vigorously, butt fucking one another. Yeah. And it's not like, I thought I'm like, Oh, this is like a, a rape joke. Like this is gross, but it's not like um, uh, it was translated into Korean. And like the 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 but well, there was like text on the side of it, and it was translated. It, yeah, I saw that. Was, <laughs> that was uh, the Japanese translated into Korean, and uh, a, a fan of the show it was a former Korean linguist uh, for the U.S. Navy, and translated that to English. And it, all it pretty much shows is like they're romantically having sex, and it's like, and it's from it's yeah, consensual? yeah, and it's like from the time of. And it makes absolutely no sense. That's confusing. It's so bizarre. Huh. Um, I would say I'll post that to the... One of them didn't look willing. 
I mean, I'll they were say. both fully clothed, which was weird. It was like one of those drop the pants situations. They were just, huh. oh, the, the through the old uh, through the old underwear hole. It's uh, they're caught in the throes of passion, clearly. Uh, so I guess uh, we can close this segment with saying Russia sparked war against Japan, and a long enough timeline it led to the creation of hentai. You're welcome. Um, and it's now my wallpaper, Nick. We uh, uh we do a thing on the show called questions from the legion and oh it's back, it's uh, back. It, and there's for people who are probably wondering where those from on the last three hours of the show we don't do them at the end of every series episode um because we have enough stuff we have to cover so at the end of a series we uh, uh we cover them and so there's we got a, a, a quite a bit um if you would like to ask a question from the legion you could email me or you or you could slide a DM into our, our podcast Twitter. You could go onto the podcast subreddit. You could go into the Discord. Um, I keep forgetting we have a subreddit. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure who made that. Um, <laughs> so this question comes from the Discord. What meal hasn't been made into an MRE that you think would be a good candidate for being turned into one? Oh, fuck. I could tell you one that I would, I would love just to see what they would do. I want to see... Mexican street taco. Mexican MRE. street taco MREs. Oh boy. That, I want to see that. That sounds like a surefire way for disappointment. Yeah, def- for I, fucking sure. Just like how the pizza slice I was haven't one. seen Definitely MREs in quite some time because I have the, uh, the privilege of being a civilian. Um, so I'm not, I know they've updated a lot, but fuck. Uh, the Mexican street taco one's good. Uh, sushi. Fuck it. Just, just oh, give me God. food. Just, just line me up with foodborne illness and kill me, fam. I like, just, just do it. Uh, or uh, just like, uh, like a micro brew kit and an MRE oh. pack. Oh God! Oh, ooh. <laughs> so I could imagine with the sushi one, they would just throw the fucking tuna meal kind of in there, like. All right, do it yourself. Yeah, it, you get the tuna. You get like the Starkist tuna packet, a, a thing of rice, and like uh, some seaweed. Yeah, oh, cool! Lemon pepper sushi. <laughs> so, Nick, thanks God. for joining me, uh, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this uh, four-part series. Yeah, I'm getting tacos now. Just so you I all know, probably going to get sushi actually. Um, huh. And, uh, in- until next time, I don't know what a good way to end this one is. Um, don't make, I don't know, uh, don't create hentai. I don't know. People like hentai. Create hentai. I don't know. Fuck it. Make hentai. And we'll see you next time.